contractually obligated to do that with every teaching. We've, uh, you guys, that just, whew, just went right over your heads. Like, didn't you see all the product placement in the Avengers this weekend? Okay, obviously most of you didn't go to see the Avengers, all right. Don't talk about pop culture to these people. They don't get it. Okay. Uh, we're going to start a new series, and I want to introduce it with some interesting survey results. Uh, polling data uh, and anecdotal evidence you know, from folks suggests that, that larger and larger segments of, of our public, you know, the, the, the society we live in today, view faith and religion, and sometimes they, review the, uh, they view those interchangeably. I don't, but sometimes the surveys kind of work that way. They view it in a very negative light. I'm going to give you some statistics. There's, there's three things that uh, polling data over and over and over comes up with. And I'll, I'll show you some of the data under each one of these points. Many people believe that faith is irrelevant. A lot of people believe faith's irrational. And a lot of people believe that, that faith is extreme. Okay? So here's some of the stats under each of those points. Uh, Gallup polls, there's a number of them, have showed that 39% of Americans believe no, a religion offers no answers to today's problems. And just back in 1980, only 15% of the general public viewed religion as irrelevant or having no answers to today's problems. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge leap in terms of how people view faith. Second, uh, people view it as irrational. 30, let's look at the younger demographic. 39% of millennials, par parenthetically, who were raised in church, okay? 39% of millennials who were raised in church, that's kids, kids, my kids' age, believe science has proved religion is nothing but superstition. I don't know if you've run into anybody who, who thinks that way, but that's a, that's a pretty broadly held belief. 29% of those millennial young folks believe the church is out of step with modern science. 31% of incoming college freshmen, this was a couple of years ago now, believe science and faith are fundamentally in conflict. They're not just sort of tangentially, like on the edges. Here and there, science and faith conflict. They believe, so almost a third of incoming freshmen already believe that before they go to college and are challenged. Their faith is, we know, is often challenged even more significantly. Now, here's the one that's the most eye-opening. A lot of people in our society today believe that, that any kind of religion or faith is, is extreme. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, depending on the question, between 50 and 79% of people interviewed in a Barna research survey said the following practices, these practices, I'm going to repeat, were very or somewhat extreme. Praying out loud for someone in public. Attempting to convert others to their faith. Protesting government policies that conflict with your faith. Now it's interesting that people are comfortable with, with generally with people protesting government policies that, you know, 
conflict with their own convictions. But if your conviction is a faith-based conviction, then you're looked at as some kind of an extreme wingnut. Uh, somewhere between 6 and 19% of the people surveyed thought these practices, now this is going to shock you even more, these practices were considered somewhat to very extreme. Reading the Bible silently in a public place. Donating money to a religious community. Attending church, synagogue, or mosque on a weekly basis. Abstaining from alcohol for religious reasons. I don't believe that, but that's something to... uh, uh, No. Uh, Volunteer, volunteering to help someone in need. That many people think if you're doing that for religious reasons, you're extreme. I don't know if you've encountered any of this, the looks, the conversations, but here's what happens is it starts wearing on you. You feel it. You have conversations with with people in the past. Oftentimes, if people had those kinds of feelings, they didn't often voice them. Now they're voiced freely and openly, you know, to people. I think our society has become, you know, much more kind of a free-for-all than it used to be. But here's what happens to a lot of people of faith, unfortunately, who encounter this kind of friction with the culture that we live in, is they tend to do one of three things. Number one, they just kind of go in the closet. They just go, I'm just going to fold my faith up, and, you know, and I'm just going to put it in a drawer somewhere, and it... and and. I'm going to keep doing my thing, but I'm not. I'm just going to keep my head down. I don't want to make any waves. I don't even want anybody to know I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like a secret agent Christian. And a lot of people do that. Because you, you feel intimidated. You feel bullied. You feel stupid. I mean, when people think your faith is irrelevant, irrational, and extreme, it's going to do something to you. It's going to play with your mind. Other people get mad at that and they join the culture wars and go, I'm going to fight back. You know, I'm taking my country back. I'm taking the workplace back. And they become kind of combative. And, you know, just between you and me, do you think that works real well? (laughs) People who are more and more hostile towards you, that when you get, you get combative and get in their faces, they're getting in your face, you know, it doesn't work real well. It doesn't tend to persuade them that you have something going with respect to faith that, that might offer them something. When they see you being like that, angry, and, uh, and, and, and believe it or not, remember, a lot of times anger, it's a secondary emotion. It's more about the fear that we have. And a lot of people of faith become afraid when people don't like them anymore. Oh, my gosh. And then out of that fear, it's like a dog that, that growls. It's not growling because it's mean. It's growling because it's afraid. And a lot of people of faith get afraid when they start hearing this. And they go, oh, don't tell me about this, John. But the truth is we, gotta, we need to live in the real world. And the last thing that a lot of people do, and this is the most unfortunate response, is they just assimilate. They just go, I'm just going to 
I'm just going to slip back into my old life before I met Jesus. And I'm just going to go with the flow. It's just not worth it. You know, it, it, it closes too many doors for me at work. People in my neighborhood label me and no one, you know, wants to come over for a barbecue or no one wants to, you know, whatever. All those are really unfortunate, whether you go in the closet or you, you go on the war path or you just go back and assimilate. Remember, remember back in the 90s, Star Trek, uh, the Borg? Does anybody remember that? Oh, my gosh. A couple of you. Should I even tell everybody? Okay, no. Gotcha. Sorry. They were these aliens that every, that they would, they would come on uh, different, you know, species, and they would tell them immediately, surrender, uh, you will be assimilated, you know, we will take your technology and your biology, and you will serve us, you know, resistance is futile, right, so that, that's what a lot of Christians feel like, gosh, it's just, resistance is futile, but listen, th this series we're starting on, we're going to, the, the, the title's really long. Sounds like a Woody Allen title. If you, How do you live as a follower of Jesus in a culture that thinks that your faith is irrelevant, irrational, and extreme? How do you do that? And we're, we're going to look at the book of 1 Peter because it's a book that was written to people who lived in what we call modern-day Turkey. There was a lot of churches in the, what we call modern-day Turkey. It was a thriving Christian community. In fact, there were so many Christians in that community that Paul left. He planted a lot of those churches, and the churches were so effectively communicating the gospel, and he was always ambitious to share the gospel like in, in places where people had never heard the gospel. He said, there's no room left for me. And so he was going to Spain. But... The Roman Empire there, around the time this letter was written, around the early 60s, a lot of hostility just flamed up against the church. And so Peter wrote this letter, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, but we're going to hit the high points over the next few weeks. But we're going to look at how did Peter help those new believers in the first century live with, now they face some hostility that we don't face. They actually face physical persecution and hostility and physical danger to life and limb, the whole thing. So how, what did he tell them? And so I want to read the first two verses. If you have a Bible with you, uh, look in 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you want to borrow one of the loaner Bibles in the chairs and chair seats in front of you, it's page 839. I'm just going to read the first two verses. It's very short. Of course, my teaching won't be very short, but the, the passage is very short. Okay, 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Now, here's the cool thing about these kinds of uh, greetings is they tended to be in the ancient world the kind of a, a roadmap to everything that was going to be talked about. And so there's three things that, that Peter introduces to them. He talks about, to them, God's authority, their identity, and God's resources for living in that world. So he wanted them to know just these were seeds that he's going to break open and, and explain more about. That in this world that they live in, God had authority in it. That he had authority over that world, over all the stuff that they faced that was overwhelming. Second, he wanted them to know, and this is really, really, really interesting. He wanted them to know, because it's the, it's the bulk of the, this book and the bulk of this part here, is him trying to anchor them in what their identity really was. We're gonna, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit, the, the majority of what we talk about today. And then the third thing was the re, just the resources that God had for them in terms of facing this place that they lived in that was so difficult. So, Peter says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, Jesus gave me authority to represent him to speak to you, to bring his word to you. And, and if you go back and read Jesus' interaction with, his, with the apostles and with us, as he says to Peter, and he says to us, whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So Peter is walking around going, I hear from God, and I speak from God, and insofar as I'm, I'm, I'm faithfully speaking what God is saying, he backs me up. He sends me. He's involved here. Now, that's, you know, in, <laughs> in, uh, in psychotherapy terms, if you think you're hearing from God, it can be a problem, and... You go, okay, you guys didn't get that, did you? Right. Peter opens the letter saying, I'm on a mission from God, like the Blues Brothers. Both versions of the movie. I know it's another old cultural reference, but he's saying, I'm sent from God to speak to you. That, is, that sounds as crazy now as it did then, and it sounds as crazy then as it does now. But it's true. It's true. Time's, time has shown us that God spoke through Peter because the impact of his words on people who, who hear them and respond to them, it's life-changing. But what he's saying is that God is involved in this thing that you're going through. And he has authority over this thing you're going through, and you're not alone. The second thing he says is he talks about their identity. And so he says, I'll read the passage again, the middle part. He calls them God's elect. He says, I'm writing to God's elect, strangers in the world, and then he, where, they, where they live. And he says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling by his blood. And so Peter calls these believers technically resident aliens. We would call them H-1B today. Is that H-1B or H-B-1? H-1B, thank you. No? No, they're not perm. They weren't permanent aliens. Yeah, but so uh, they, uh, well, anyway, I don't, I'm not exactly sure they had that category back then. I was just hoping to sound really smart. Obviously, <laughs> furthermore, I didn't. I've lost. I've lost the whole crowd now. There were some kind of people who were from another place who stayed in another place. But the thing is, they were resident aliens. Now, they were people, most of them were born literally where they were, but not all of them. Now, here's the thing about resident aliens. They were, resident aliens were people who served in a community for the benefit of that community. They got some benefit, but for the benefit of that community. And here's, here's three characteristics of them. Number one, they were outsiders. Number two, they were really vulnerable because they didn't tend to have the same legal status and protections that the people who were the naturalized citizens had. And three, they were seen by the normal citizens as second class. And so Peter is, he's, he's saying two things when he calls them resident aliens. He says, number one, many of you came to faith from literally the resident alien class of all those communities. And those that didn't, you still are considered by people because of your faith like you're a resident alien. You're a second class. You're not seen in the same light as everyone else. You're more vulnerable than other people are because of, just because of your faith. Just like resident aliens were treated a certain way, not because there was some deficiency in them innately, but because of the way the people around them viewed them. Does that sound fair? No, it's not. But that's the way it was. And so these Christians were living, these followers of Jesus were living in this environment. So what he says is to them, you are God's resident aliens. Let me break it down. So what he meant was, because of our faith in Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus, they were beloved children of God who comprised God's countercultural people who are living for the common good. That's a phrase that's been introduced in the last few years around the United States, that, that the church is a countercultural community for the common good. Meaning... We're different because we're supposed to be different. We're different because we're supposed to challenge certain things about the world we live in, but we're also supposed to also supposed to live for the common good. Now remember how we've talked many times about the Jewish people when they were scattered in Babylon and how one of the things that God said to them when they were in Babylon, this the, the country that had invaded their country and just leveled it and ruthlessly killed people in the most cruel way, 
and then took the best of the survivors and deported them back to Babylon to use them as enhancements to their, their, their culture. They train them, and you know, they had a, there was a lot of smart people in Israel, and they would get trained in Babylonian learning and education and uh, teaching and vocations, and then they would place them in civil authority to work for the Babylonians. What a, that, that doesn't sound like a good deal at all. And then God told them, don't try to get out of that. In fact, represent me there as a countercultural community and live for the good of the city that you're in, Babylon. And the Jewish people just held their heads and said, no way, that's crazy. Why would we live for the common good of people who've devastated our lives? And he said, that's my purpose. And then and he said something really important. He said, because your welfare and their welfare are bound up together. If you just pursue your own welfare, you will not realize it. Because I love these Babylonians, even though, you know, they don't, they don't respect me, they don't follow me, I want them to see what I'm like through you. And so I want you to live for their, com for the, not just for your good, but for their good, for the common good. So you're going to see in this book, that hasn't changed. That's always been God's goal. Because remember, we go back to, to Genesis. I always go back to Genesis 12, where God called Abraham. And he said, I'm going to bless you. And a lot of people love that line. They just stand on that. I'm a blessed people. How many of you have seen the, the I'm blessed meme on Facebook? Right? I'm blessed. You haven't seen that? Now, this is actually happening right now. And not, not 1982. <laughs> wow. Don't use the I'm blessed meme comment. Nobody's on Facebook anymore. They're all on Twitter arguing with people. <laughs> or Instagram looking at pictures. There's a meme. <laughs> I can't believe I'm teaching our church about social media. There is a meme called the I'm blessed meme. Now raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay. There's only four of you. All right. I'm so grateful. You know, I don't, I don't use the word Facebook generally in here because it, half of us are just immediately triggered to look on Facebook. What's on Facebook? What's going on on Facebook? Obviously, you guys are getting that out of your system, so I can talk about it now safely. That's actually happened. I've made Facebook comments, and I've seen people go. They, they kind of put their phone in front of the, just behind the person's head in front of them so I can't see it. And they're looking like, I see your eyes going down. I see what's going on. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. You know, great. But it would be cool to see a meme that, that says, my city's blessed. My neighbors are blessed. My enemies are blessed. We just, it, it just shows you that we haven't gotten the gospel as deep as it's meant to get. And because our, our common good and their common good are together, if you ever wonder why you're not feeling blessed, it's because your neighbors and your welfare are bound up together. 
And if you're just thinking about yourself and working for your own interest and not theirs too, you're not going to get what God has for you. That's the implications of this whole thing of being a countercultural community for the common good. It's very inconvenient to contemplate that and then actually walk it out. Because we, we, a part of our past that we're trying to leave is that it's all about me. And the lie that we believe that if I don't take care of me, nobody will. Jesus says, no, I got your back, number one. That's what this whole thing's about. You're resident aliens. You're my resident aliens. I got your back. That's what he told Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. And the Jewish people kind of were not fully faithful towards that vision. But sometimes they were, and you could see all, all these places in the Old Testament where God's hand came upon and blessed people. Joseph's in prison, and it says God was with him, and, and, and everything he did in the prison was blessed. When he was in Potiphar's household, God was with him, and Potiphar was so amazed at, at how his household and all of his businesses flourished under Joseph that he, he stopped worrying about it. And Joseph was quite happy for God's blessing to fall on a household in which he was an indentured servant. Because he was getting blessed too. That's, that's what happens. In America, we're so atomized. And, and instead of like, like the church, instead of being a, a, a temple made of living stones built together, we're like a pile of gravel. And our country is a pile of gravel in many respects. And everyone is doing the I'm blessed meme. And, and we're missing it. And so he's telling them, listen, you guys, I got I to gotta tell you, it gets worse if you don't embrace the living for the common good thing. Because part of the way that you disarm your enemies is you love your enemies. You don't disarm them by fighting them. You don't disarm them by fleeing from them. You don't disarm them by slandering them. You don't disarm them by, you know, pantsing them in public, rhetorically. Uh, you win by serving. You win by dying. And it was just, it, 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 it's this thing. Oh, the table was here. It's that thing that we do every week that churches do. It says the victory comes that we celebrate on Easter. The victory came because Jesus did that for us and for his enemies. And so if we live by that, we live through him, we win. And people around us win. And people have lost sight of that. That's the hope that we have. You're gonna, we'll read all through the book of 1 Peter this word hope, 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 hope. It's repeated over and over. Do you hear that spoken very much in our culture today? I don't. I really don't. I don't hear people say we're hopeless. But I, I don't see hopefulness as I look around. I don't mean it, you guys. You're all full of hope. Your hope is just flowing out of your ears. No, I'm kidding, it's not. I'm trying to get you there, but it is, the gospel does give us hope, but it doesn't work 
the way all the other schemes work. And so he tells them, here's why you're God's resident aliens. He said, because the Father chose you, the Spirit sanctified you, and Jesus sprinkled you with his blood. And those terms were very familiar to them, but what he's basically saying is that as resident aliens, nobody, I mean, you were useful. But if, if, if push came to shove, you didn't matter. You were useful for your utility. Your permanent residence, worker status gave you something because you were a good computer engineer. But if you weren't a computer engineer and all you were was, you know, sous chef, you're not getting in our country. We got plenty of sous chefs. We got sous chefs that are out of work. We don't want more sous chefs from wherever you're from. But what he's saying is the father wanted you. He wanted you and he pursued you through his spirit and drew you. And then when he said that we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, he's referring to in the Jewish nation, when God made this covenant with the Jewish people and he killed the animal, he took the blood of the animal that the priest did and they, they, they flung it on people as a sign. God's made a covenant with you. He's committed himself to you. He's bound himself to you. God has bound himself to you and to us. And he said to all those people, you were God's resident aliens. Your culture isn't binding itself to you. It's avoiding you. It looks down at you. It will exploit you. People will exploit you. I won't ask for a show of hands. Because I know many of your stories. You've been exploited. Family, friends, workplace, strangers, government. Public servants are the greatest in the long line of exploiters, unfortunately. And I'm not saying that cynically. I'm saying that just from firsthand experience and knowledge. Not all, but many. We're just in a sea that's hostile to us. When I used to surf, there would be times in the spring where jellyfish would come in. Two kinds of jellyfish. These jellyfish that are underwater and then Portuguese man-of-wars. And it was often the best time to surf. And you'd be paddling it out. And you're... You're trying not to put your hand on a jellyfish. But it's like everywhere. It's a dilemma. These people felt like that. And God's saying, listen, I am with you. I am for you. You're my beloved children. This is your identity. I sprinkle you with the blood of the sacrifice, the lamb, who willingly did that so that you could become my covenant people, that I'd be committed to you with all my heart. How do you think that made them feel? Just like the opening lines of the letter, he's saying to them, who were really feeling put upon and besieged, and just out of place. What do you think? Do you think that that could have had any impact on them? Maybe it reminded them of something that they'd experienced. Yeah, maybe we are that. And I think it's, that's what it's supposed to do with us. But I want to tell you something. The coolest part about this is the next line, and we're going to close with this. The next line, he says, it sounds like a little greeting. It just sounds like a throwaway line. Look at it with me. Verse 2. It's at the end. Uh, 
verse 2. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, grace is a New Testament term, and it's parallel in the Old Testament, peace. So what he's saying is, the Father wants you, the Spirit is working in your life, and Jesus has sprinkled you with his blood so you can obey him and you can be the people of God. And God wants to pour out his resources on you. That the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is to take what Jesus did on the cross that we keep being reminded of and to make it real to us so we experience it. So we experience it. And, and I'm here to tell you, this, what Jesus said over and over and over was, he would come into places and he would say, the kingdom of God is here. And then he would show that the kingdom was here by demonstrating the power of the kingdom and the love of the kingdom and the generosity of the kingdom and the embrace and the acceptance and the wisdom of the kingdom. And so when, when Peter says, he speaks this, this, it sounds like just sort of a, a nice greeting card phrase. He is speaking something that has power over them. It's, it's a promise and it's an invitation to position yourself for the resources of God to break into your life where you need them. So what I want to ask you to do with me, we'll close with this, is this. Uh, Tell you the story, give you an example of what this is like. So there's a young man who uh, he he in his life growing up had experienced a, a fair amount of uh, being an outsider like these people, uh, maybe feeling somewhat rejected at times, and and he had a con he had a regular experience among his peers as he was growing up, like in you know elementary and middle school. Uh, there's there's kickball games and and wiffle ball games, and you know all kinds of sports, and tag, and whatever. And uh, at least among guys, you tend to have two teams, and two people become the captains, and they start picking. Okay, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take him. And this young guy was always the last one picked. And frequently, they would say, I don't want him on my team. You take him. Oh, I don't want him. I mean, when you're standing there and you hear that, how does it make you feel? No. I mean, as a grown-up, when you, when you go to interview after interview after interview, and they all say, we'll, we'll call you. After a while, it reinforces something in your heart that you're less than, right? You're less than. Anybody felt that in your life anywhere? This is, a, this is the time and the place for honesty and vulnerability, so you don't have to feel shame, because all of us have. Everybody that Peter is writing here has. So this young man was getting some prayer, and what he was, because later in life, he had really struggled with that. And Because when you experience that, that, tr that less than treatment, you're less than, you're less than, you're less than, you're less than, it, it starts working on you, and you start living like you're less than. Your life starts 
accommodating that. That becomes how you think. You start believing lies. You start living in response to it. It programs you. Relationships program us. And he didn't have any, he didn't have any resources to deal with it. And, you know, then he became a follower of Jesus, and he started realizing, because he, he heard us talk about it here at Vineyard, the gospel <laughs> offers us resources that can address that. And he was going, well, you know, I've tried to, like, say to myself, I'm, you know, I'm not less than, and, you know, it hasn't really worked very well. <laughs> you know, I've, 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 I've made the, all the positive affirmations that you can make, and I don't feel positively affirmed. <laughs> And it's not changing the way I view myself. And it's like people can see this on me. So as he was getting prayed for, what they encouraged him, this is what I'm gonna, we're going to do this this morning. Um, they said, well, let's ask the Lord if there's any particular memory, a part of your story that, you know, was, was part of this, what you're carrying around, what you're living with, this, this self-identification is less than. And he was a successful person in many respects, well-educated, smart, uh, really, really had a, a real genuine faith in Christ. And so he said, sure. So th- as they prayed, uh, this one scene came up, you know, of being in one of those little playground situations where teams were being uh, chosen off. And he was staying there and nobody wanted him and he just felt stupid. People were making fun of him because kids were laughing. And uh, you can imagine, it's, it's a very embarrassing, personally painful thing. And so he said, yeah, told people praying for him, this is what I saw. Well, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to invite Jesus to come and be present here. You're going to experience the Lord's presence. And, and when you experience his presence, let us know. And then we're going to, I want you to invite him to be present with you in that story, in that memory. Because he was there. Do you understand? Everything we've been through, Jesus was there. We just didn't know he was there. We needed someone to be there, somebody different than what we usually experience. And he goes, well, I don't, you know, is he going to show up? Because it's, it's kind of scary to do that. What if nobody shows up? Because a lot of times in our life, when we needed people, there wasn't anybody there. Is Jesus going to be there now? Well, let's see. It's kind of risky. So he prayed. He, you know, he saw the memory. And then he said, okay, I sense the Lord's presence. Jesus, where are you? And he's standing. And he could see himself as a little kid standing there. And he looked to his side. And Jesus was standing right beside him. And he felt the emotion rise up in his heart. I'm not alone. And then Jesus put his arm around him and just... Drew him close to him, like that, just boom. And he felt it in his body. And nobody told him to see anything. He saw Jesus there. And Jesus just pulled him close. And he said he felt, like I wrote it down, he said he felt, I felt safe. I felt secure. I felt valued. And I no longer felt worthless. And just like there's just the emotion of the moment was it really touched his heart. So that's what Peter's talking about when he says, the grace and peace of God be yours in abundance. 
that's available, that kind of resource is available to us all the time, all right? So what I want to ask you to do, we're just going to pray a couple minutes before we dismiss around noon here. I'm going to ask the Lord to just give us a sense of safety here. You know, where we're, we're here with, with the Lord, and we're not going to be distracted and interrupted. And, and he may not, this, this may not be meant for everybody that's here. But I felt what he prompted earlier when I was, this week when I was praying about this, that, that there were people here today that you feel less than. And you feel less than, not because you are less than, you're not. But you feel less than, just like the people in 1 Peter felt less than, the resident aliens, you feel less than because of how you've been treated. And the treatment has, you know, there's been peaks and valleys of that throughout your life. And the Lord knows key times in your life, times in your life that were key in terms of shaping that less than feeling that you have. So what I want to do is, in a minute, I'm just going to ask, you know, you, to, you, you don't have to close your eyes, but if you want to just see if the Lord will meet you there, if there is grace and peace for that in your life, I just want you to close your eyes and just silently pray with me and just kind of follow my instructions. And we just invite the Spirit to come and make Jesus real to you because that's what he does, okay? So if you want to do that, just close your eyes right now. Father, uh, thank you that you hear our prayers. And we just pray that, that all around this room, that this would just become a safe place. That the enemy would not be able to interrupt or trouble or, or create any turmoil in, in our hearts. And that we would, we would know that we're in your care. And I know sometimes church isn't always a safe place for people. And sometimes... There might, there might even be people here today that have been hurt at church and been shamed in churches maybe even where they felt less than. Lord, I just pray for them that, that you would hold their concerns in your, in your mighty hands right now and just enable them to feel safe with you and safe before you. I'm just going to wait just a second. Just let the Spirit to... Just create that peace for you. Now, Father, I pray that uh, if there's any part of their story that you want to bring to their memory right now, that, that you want Jesus to invade, just bring it to their minds right now. Now, those of you that see something and that something's come to mind, a memory, just want to ask you just to silently just tell your Father in Heaven how that felt. How did that feel, that, that scene that's come to your mind? You don't have to say it out loud. But as you say it, just get in touch with how you feel. Get in touch with how you feel that in your body. 
and where you feel it. I'm not going to pray this prayer for you. This is a prayer you should pray. As you think about that story, and you think about how you felt, how it made you feel, I want you, you, just silently, or out loud if you want, invite Jesus into that story, into that very place that you see in your mind, the scene, the location. Just invite him in there. Say, Jesus, come into this memory where I felt less than. And then just wait, and just in your mind's eye, look around and see where he is. And if you see Jesus there, ask him, Lord, is there anything you want to say? And just listen to whatever he says. Sometimes you can't see Jesus, but suddenly you'll feel his presence with you in, in that. Sometimes seeing him is something that grows in your, your capacity to, to recognize him. So, as you sense his presence, or you see him, and just welcome whatever he's doing, and thank him for whatever he's saying to you right now. Just, just simply welcome it and thank him. Now, Jesus, thank you that you draw near to us and even in the most surprising places and even in the times in our lives that seem the darkest like you rose from the grave when it was dark and you you raise us from the grave in the darkest times and in your name Jesus I, I just bless everyone that's here that's seeing you and meeting with you that your presence and your words would begin to change the story of their lives. Would begin to bring greater joy, greater peace, and grace. It would be theirs in abundance. 
And Lord, the lies that they believed as a result of this, I pray that they would just begin to dissolve and deteriorate. And that your words would begin to be what rings in their ears and in their hearts. And I seal this work in your heart against any work of the enemy to steal from you or to confuse you or to accuse you or to deceive you. And I just say, as, as the word of God says, let grace and peace be yours in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me say something to you before you dismiss. Uh, When, when I pray with a lot of people like this, like we just did here, and what I've learned over the years is that people, people compare themselves so quickly. Any situation we get into, we just kind of, we've learned to compare ourselves, and we think, uh, whatever I'm experiencing must be bad. It must not be enough. must be off. must be wrong. Or, if I don't experience exactly what someone says, that's a sign there's really something wrong with me. It's not. Everything in life requires us to grow into things. And, you know, like, the model for this kind of prayer and ministry was what Jesus did with, the, with Peter after Peter denied him. In John 21, Jesus sought Peter out. Peter had gone back to fishing. He'd kind of given up. He thought... He was washed out of Jesus' seminary. And Jesus pursued him, created a fire, just like the fire where Peter had denied Jesus. And there was fish cooking. There was, you know, our senses are the most powerful part of our memory. And then he drew Peter in there and he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, oh boy, oh boy, you know I love you. And he goes, tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, Lord, why do you keep asking me this? You know I love you. Well, then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Stop, you know, it's driving me crazy. He's, he's getting upset. You know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Peter, with each denial, had this experience of failure and you remember Jesus said, if, if you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven. And Jesus was saying to him, you're not washed out, Peter. He was speaking to the need of Peter's heart in that scene, just like our. And it's, it's no fun. You saw Peter's reaction. None of us like to look at things that are upsetting and hurtful. It's just human. We don't. We gain too much weight, and there's a mirror on the back door our closet, you know, we start hanging stuff over the mirror. I don't want to look at it. That's just a simple thing. I got a couple extra pounds. We, we, don't, when we don't know how to deal with things. We just avoid them. But Jesus, this, this is one of the things I, I keep saying about this table. It just tells us over and over, don't avoid, don't hide. And, and it's like God coaxes us out of fear and all the stuff that we do just trying to cope. But 
I want you to walk out with this promise. Peter said, grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's God's will for you. He wants you to experience his grace and peace and abundance. But it's by his grace. It's not through your efforts. It's not through you, you know, polishing yourself up and putting your best foot forward and having all the answers to the questions in jeopardy and all the things that we do in our life, you know, to kind of make a place for ourselves. Jesus just says, you're resident aliens, but you're my resident aliens. I love you. I've chosen you. I'm going to bless. He was telling them, you get into this book, he's saying, that those communities you're in are going to be changed because of you, those people that they look down on. That is your destiny. Every one of you here. Every one of us. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your encouraging word. Thank you for uh, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you want us, that your spirit is changing us, and that Jesus has made us your people. And Father, I pray over every person that's here this morning as they walk out these doors, that that truth would be rooted a little deeper in their hearts than it was. And their experience of your presence and those stories that those less than stories would just stay with them. And the hope that, that you want them to live in would grow in their hearts. Father, we ask all this not because of anything that we've done, but for the sake and the glory and honor and the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a good weekend. See you uh, next Sunday. Uh, sorry, that's my usual say goodbye. Yeah, we'll give you about 10 minutes to, to, for everyone to split, and then we'll, we'll do our little congregational gathering.